The Mojo Radio Show. We scour the planet to find the biggest names in health, creativity, wellness, strategy, brand, performance, management, and more. Turn this up. This is going to be crazy. This is Jason Overcome Redman. Hey, I'm Dave Acosta. Hi, this is Cal Newport, author of Deep Work. G'day, this is Ryan Park. I'm Batman. This is Ivan Davies from my town. I'm Andrea Burke from the Canadian National Women's Rugby Team. I'm Lucas Fickendee. This is Kate Fletcher, Kate Spider. This is the Mojo Radio Show, where I'll be coming to see you. Then we ask them the big questions. Oh, man, this is such a great question. You've actually landed right on the mark. That's a, another really good question. It's great talking to some clever dudes, frankly. I've gone probably a little bit more in-depth with you than, uh, than I have in the book. I've done, like, 500 interviews, but nobody asked me about this. <laughs> oh, wow. And sometimes we talk about darts. There we go. Can I tell you, Dina, Gary's favourite sport is darts. How athletic is that? I think it's uh, interesting that it's your favourite, but I won't be judgmental. (laughs) Look, it's the only sport that I know of where a prerequisite is a pint of beer and a cigarette. Come on, let's be honest. The Mojo Radio Show. We don't take ourselves too seriously. So you try throwing a half a dozen darts in a row and just see how you go, Uh, my friend. But we hope you will. Welcome. I got my book. To the Mojo Radio Show. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 283 of the Mojo Radio Show. I can't believe we've made it this far. If you've been around for a while, thanks for coming back. And if you're new to the show, what do we do here? Well, we just find interesting people who have their mojo going in some aspect of their life. We sit them down, pick their brains, and extract the gold that you can go off and use in your own world to make your life, career, or hopefully even both, that little bit better. Today, we're heading into the kitchen with a MasterChef Australia contestant who's making a massive name for himself on the global stage, and not just for his food. But uh, we'll get into that a bit later. Before we get there, things are a little different this week. Bertie's off having his eyebrows shaped and a little manscaping done. So AP and I here at the wheel. But AP and what I must say will probably be the first of many changes in the format of this episode. We've traded the big red bus for the small red Ferrari. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yes, exactly. Is there room for both of us? I know. We're showing our middle-agedness by doing that. <laughs> I thought I thought it'd be a small red Commodore or a small red Camry or something. <laughs> that's probably more us, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> now, listen, you're sitting in the illustrious bald one's chair. Do you think he can live up to the expectations? Oh, well, look, it's a, it's a hard act to follow. They are big shoes to fill. Having said that, um, I have played Ronald McDonald in the past, so I'm used to wearing <laughs> shoes that size. Robbo's Remarkable Facts. It's about time. Let's go. Since we're talking food today, I thought I might come up with a bit of info on the one fruit, in my house anyway, that doesn't last long with five kids lurking around, the humble banana AP. Bananas are actually classified as berries and strawberries are really members of the rose family. Well, well, well. I had no idea. Bananas are berry. That's weird. I know. Here's a few other mind-bending facts. See what I did there? Yeah. (laughs) Bananas can help improve your mood and lower your blood pressure. Rubbing the inside of a banana peel on a mosquito bite can stop it from itching. And here's the big crazy one. Humans share about 50% of their DNA with bananas. (laughs) Speak for yourself. <laughs> so, so there you go. Everything you never wanted to know about bananas, all in one place. Well, that's uh, 
That's probably why they're so appealing. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. Whose idea was that no, to no, let you on the show? <laughs> exactly. Now, here's one for you. Did you know that during the Great Fire of London, uh, Samuel Pepys buried some food in his garden? Do you know what it was? No, no idea. I don't even know who Samuel Pepys is. Samuel Pepys? Well, it was a wheel. It was a wheel. A wheel of cheese? Of Parmesan. A wheel of Parmesan cheese. Wow. There you go. What did he do that for? Because Parmesan cheese was so valuable and he didn't want to lose it, so he buried huh. it in his garden just in case his house caught fire. And that was, what, the Great Fire of London? So what's that, 1800 something? No, no, 16... Oh, 1600s. 16, yeah. So were you there for that, AP? Yeah, yeah, I was, yeah. <laughs> I was uh, actually going to make a cheese toasty, but uh, <laughs> did it for me. All right, everybody, this is Jason Overcome Redman. I may have survived an Al-Qaeda ambush in Iraq... But it was even harder to survive the Mojo Radio Show. This week's guest started his rise to fame on the hit TV show MasterChef Australia. He's now based in New York and doing some really amazing things. Uh, He's regularly featured on Good Morning America, the ABC's show The Chew, and on the Food Network. Uh, He's the chef and co-founder of his own restaurant, Charlie Street, and he has his own production kitchen where he films videos and content for his social media and production network. Dan Churchill has also hosted a show called Surfing the Menu on Discovery Channel and recently produced his own series, Feast with Friends. He's a bit of a writer too. He's written cookbooks like Dude Food, The Healthy Cook, and he's also a brand ambassador for companies like Qantas, Intel, Tourism Australia, Cobram Estate, and California Almonds. Dan's also the first chef to be appointed ambassador to the sports clothing company Under Armour. Sounds like this guy's got not much time for much else, AP. Oh, that uh, sounds pretty busy. <laughs> he does, doesn't he? Yeah. But all this isn't the only reason Dan's joining us this week. With a social media audience of more than, get this AP, 10 million We wanted to get inside his marketing head. Oh, interesting. He's got channels on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube, and his podcast, The Epic Table, has some amazing numbers, something that this show sadly lacks. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, that said, said, Bertie and I caught up with him a few weeks ago as he was locked down in probably the world's biggest COVID hotspot right now, New York City. So, Dan, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Mate, thank you, boys, for having me. Pleasure. We are very familiar with you. There will be some people here in Australia and different parts of the world who will not know who you are. When you meet somebody on the street and they say, hey, man, what do you do? How do you like to reply? Uh, I generally just go, chef. Um, yeah, I honestly, my life, the explanation behind what I do is um, it can be kind of complex in so many matters, but so simple. It's also... My, like, my mom doesn't even know what I do. So it's just easy to say I'm a chef because that's the way it's way it's <laughs> relating to. I'm an audio engineer and my mum's still trying to figure out what I do. So I think we're in the same boat on that one, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good to know, mate. Lovely mothers. Everything, everything the important things they do for us. So if I, if I talk about your mum for a second, tell me in your mind, how big an influence was the environment your parents created for you as a kid? How big an influence has that been on the trajectory of your career? Oh, it's been everything. I, you know, um, I'm a big believer that, um, how do I put it simply, I do believe that my mum and dad were two people, both who were on opposite ends of the loving spectrum. So like dad loved us in a different way than mum did. It's perfect. It's a perfect balance. So I'm in the middle of three boys and, and, and the way that I, you know, react to questions, the way that I speak, it's a 
you know, the way that I present myself is mainly due to the environment that my mum and dad brought up and obviously them being in the middle of two bo- uh, three boys that obviously helps as well to keep us humble. But yeah, mum was a loving, natured, caring woman who would nothing best for her son to be happy. And dad's the, dad's like more of a hard-nosed, direct, um, you know, person in the household. And, and the balance of both are, are huge because today I'm able to live through the ups and downs of New York City. Um, and then at the same time, I've got a very empathetic way to the way that I handle things with people and team. Um, and obviously then family in general is, I, I'm, I've become a chef and, and wanted to improve people's lives and bridge the gap between performance and cooking because food is something that was so big for me with my family. It brought us all together. And Jamie Oliver influenced you in those early days with your family, didn't he? Absolutely, mate. Like I, I recall sitting, oh, actually, yeah, sitting on the floor, my two brothers on the floor as well, and just, you know, watching and marvelling at the technique and creativity of, of Jamie. And mum and dad would be sitting there as well, and, and, and they'd be watching us. And so, you know, for us as three boys, the idea of cooking wasn't, it was, it was more the fact that we just want to get our hands dirty. And, and dad recognised this and saw the creative art, and so, like, put us, you know, into, like, a, a bit of, a, a, I guess, a template, if you will, of us um, taking turns to cook. But, you know, we always reflect on what Jamie used to do um, at those times. And as a result, it evolved into me being really passionate behind food in general and, and, he, and it, what it did in impacting people. Um, I followed his journey and it really is quite remarkable how he's used his profile for the right reasons. And um, ultimately, that's something that, you know, I've, I'm looking to do with myself. MasterChef is on here in Australia at the moment and Robbo and I were talking before we started recording that MasterChef is the most watched cooking show. The Australian version is the most watched cooking show in the world seen in 180 countries. And you you went through that MasterChef contest and it's rating its head off here in Australia right now. It's the, 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 the former contestants competing. And that's what made me think of you, Dan, a number of weeks ago when I wrote to you or to Maddie to say, hey, listen, can we catch up with Dan? Because I know your history with MasterChef. The question I've got is, how did you see yourself prior to getting into MasterChef? And then how did you see yourself when you came out of MasterChef? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, mate, my, my vision never changed from MasterChef prior to MasterChef post. And, and then so like I always knew I wanted to impact people through food and, you know, there's different ways you can do that with, you know, releasing cookbooks as such and things like that. But I think for me, if I was going into it and I knew I, I'd already released, you know, a book by then. Um, and I always knew going into it, I was going to release another one. So I knew that my heart was, I was going into doing MasterChef to completely to learn and learn everything from food to cooking techniques, the ingredients from different countries, right through to even how to work in front of a camera, not knowing it at the time, but I did. And so, like, you know, all that put aside, like, I, I, I didn't want to uh, go in there with the intention of fame. I didn't. Otherwise, uh, I wouldn't have done it. But post, it didn't change. I, I, when I, I got out of the house and as soon as I finished, I did a book. And that's exactly what I said I'd do prior to. Um, and so, for me, like, you know, I think what happened was I, I learned so much in that six-month process of being inside and then, you know, being amongst some of the elite chefs of the world and just around some of the experts in their respective field that allowed me to 
take that and, and go with it um, and, 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 you know, continue to build momentum off the PR platform that you do get from a show like that as well. Because you, 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 you left, that, you left show. that show and you basically had created the identity of I'm Dan Churchill, the healthy chef, because that then played into the PR you had on leaving the show and the cookbook and the socials. That was kind of a stepping stone for you creating your brand, wasn't it? I think I've discussed this with you before, mate, that it's really important that you have a personal brand and you are, you understand that your personal brand is what is who you are and you're not defined by something you're a part of because MasterChef is unbelievable. Um, but if you're defined by MasterChef throughout your whole life, you're never going to be your person, who you are. And that's not to say that you're not. MasterChef isn't a part of your brand, but it's not your brand. So it's important to have something that for you to really grow what you stand for. And that's where the Healthy Chef came um, And it's, um, yeah, it's something that I kind of attached myself to quickly and early and then was just very consistent with it with all the content I was putting out with everybody was being positioned. Um, so, yeah. Do you know, Dan, it's, it's, there's a lot of things that I admire about you, but that, that singular thing, I think it's such a great lesson for anybody who either works for themselves or works in a corporation is that so fewer people can go, here's my name and this is my positioning. This is what separates me in the world. And then the thing that has been extraordinary, because we haven't spoken for a little while, but in that time I've seen all your stuff, heard you, seen you, read stuff, you're so disciplined with how you position yourself around your dream, your mission, and your positioning. And, you know, it's funny because people people have all these companies, they're running it, but they're not, they don't take this time to step back the way you've articulated it. And then they're not consistent with it. Has that, at what point did that become conscious for you? Because there are some people who unconsciously do it. And then someone says, how are you doing? And they go, oh, yeah, right. Others are very conscious from day one. At what point did you become conscious of what you're doing mate i you know i i think i think it's in, like within me i've always had a, a bit of a plan and i think it's important to note that and when you have a plan you naturally have to reflect on what you're currently doing as it work towards your plan and you don't have to have a plan if you're you know a someone in media you can have a plan if you're someone who's you know uh, work their way up the accounting ladder or whatever it is. And that's still part of your brand identity. Like you, when you walk into your office at work, your brand is you. And so, you know, are you working towards a role? Are you working toward an exit strategy? Are you working to a path that is completely relevant to one you're in right now, but you need the one you're currently working? Whatever that is, work towards your plan. And so that enabled me to like, okay, if I know what my goal is, which is very fortunate at the young age, if I knew what my goal was, I just need to find a way to get there and what's the best action to do that. Which, which, which road do I take? And a lot of the time I took roads and some of them didn't work, but then, you know, there weren't, the, there weren't big risks that were going to affect me long term. So ultimately, you know, I, I think the answer to the question is I just, I've always been embedded to reflect on a plan and analyze that. Not, not, not extensively at times, but just kind of understand what I'm actually doing um, I don't do the week by week thing. I don't look at the you know week by week goals and month by month goals, six month goals and annual goals. Yeah, I may have like a five year plan, 
but I don't do things so granular that that would just take too much time for me to organise. But ultimately, just always work towards that plan. Do you? Would you call yourself a strategist? Would you say that you work your plan? You work to a strategy? Yeah, I think part of me definitely is. Um, you know, if you look at if you look at what I've, I've said to do, I said I want to release a book, and I did that. I want to still publish a book, and I did. They did MasterChef, and want to release another book. So I was hitting those goals, and wanted to get to America. Did that. Um, wanted to create my own studio kitchen within a restaurant. Did that. So, like, not to say that there was other things. There's plenty of things I said internally that I wanted to do and didn't do them. But I guess. I also, throughout the time, worked out what was more important to my future career. And so from there, I kind of, you know, just took a step and go, that's probably what's best for me right now, um, and then really went gun hold it. If I wanted something, I went out and did it. It's interesting, you know, when we break this down, is that you are very clear on the picture you've got. Even today, I, I know you've got these lofty dreams for Charlie Street and your own personal brand and the impact you can have on the world. But all those things you just mentioned, was having the, the podcast studio it, uh, under the restaurant, the books, the television appearances, all those things are all strategic steps that lead you to the bigger picture. And that's why, I don't know, I think people underestimate when they, when they look at guys like you, young guys are out there doing it, but there's actually a lot of thinking and strategizing that sits behind this, isn't there? Absolutely. Um, you know, like... I think it's like, it comes without saying that you have to think of your future and you've got to think about the short and the long term. But there's a lot of things that go into it. Like, you don't, I didn't just make a restaurant. Like, the reason, why, why did I create a restaurant? Did I want to have a place that I could just ensure I got amazing Australian coffee every day? Absolutely. But it wasn't the, it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't the reason. Yeah, tick. I, I, I wanted to have a presence that wasn't just, digital anymore. I want to have a place that people could understand the food I was talking about. I want to have a place I could build a community. I wanted that place then extend into other areas that could really impact people on a, on a scale and also have, give me some credibility to being, you know, in, in the agriculture impact space too. So you know, that, that's what that role plays, what Charlie Street does. Um, you know, the podcast is a, is a great play. It's, a, it's one that I'm able to interview people in this high-performance space. Now, I'm able to apply my master's degree. Um, and what that does is it puts me in a position of a voice for these people. And I'm able to articulate some weedy conversations uh, so then people will see me in, in a high-performance space as a chef. But, yes, those are strategic decisions. Uh, I also, like, I built a studio kitchen because I need to make sure I can house all my content out of one space, both podcasts and video content. And so, again, that's a strategic decision. Um, but, you know, you, you obviously you, you have to make, you make decisions based a lot on your gut, but also thinking of what the plan is, as I said earlier, and what your brand identity is going to be and what you, what you really are true to. Over the last couple of weeks in thinking of us getting together um, in a conversation that Rob and I had on the show a week or two ago, there was a, a guy called Joe Girard. Now, he was in the Guinness Book of Record as the having the record for selling the highest amount of cars in one year. So he sold 1,425 cars in a year in 1973. But what's really interesting and where I'm going with this, Dan, is that he started work as a shoeshine boy 
Then he worked as a newspaper boy. He was a dishwasher, a delivery boy, a stove assembler, a home building contractor. And at the age of 35, he walked into a Detroit car dealership, begged for a job and got it. And the rest is history. Why I tell the story is that I was curious about how you did this with restaurants because my understanding is that you would just walk into restaurants and lots of them and say, I'll do whatever, can I have a job? Take us through how you did that and what what were you seeking? What was the strategy in doing that? Yeah, I guess, mate, like, I, I don't know a lot in this world. I know nothing. Um, you're always learning. And I just continue wanting to be in that position where I know what I don't know. Now, if I wanted to be a chef who could impact the world, I need to know the world of food. And rather than just work at one restaurant, I just wanted to kind of jump between a couple and kind of understand different cooking techniques, different flavors, different ingredients, different chefs, you know. You learn a lot from people. You, you, if you have a, there's a field that's opposite to what you currently work in, you sit down and have a coffee with someone and just ask them what they do and you kind of go into it. It's amazing how much your world opens up and going, I had no idea that even existed. And that can be a limitless thing. So within the world of being a chef, the same thing happens, but at different restaurants. So I, for free, I could go to a Thai restaurant then go to a Filipino restaurant, both Southeast Asian cuisine to an extent, but they're both different. Same with, same with uh, you know, going to Vietnamese. And that's just in like a very small pocket of the world. Mm. So if I wanted to be someone who could understand different ingredients, different flavors, different cooking techniques, and then explain it to everybody, I had to understand it myself. So I, I just kind of, yeah, I would routinely jump into places, um, you know, do everything, uh, start from the bottom if I could and, you know, just kind of sit down and watch and eventually get on the tools like good and was allowed to and then kind of grow from there. And, you know, still, I reckon I could go back and do the same thing. I'd learn a whole new spectrum of things as well. It's, it's unbelievable when you apply um, interest to, 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 to wanting to learn a skill. What's just on that, one of the interests which I have never heard anybody talk about before, Dan, is actually cooking to feed healthy neurotransmitters. Now, I've, I've heard a lot of interviews with uh, Max Lugavere, who wrote Genius Foods. He talks about it. We had, yeah. we had Terry Dr. Walls. Terry Walls, who's incredible, incredible with the Walls protocol about what to eat for brain function, how to heal the brain, cure brain fog. But what I haven't heard is anybody who takes all that, knows that, and then talks about the cooking process <laughs> to cook for healthy neurotransmitters. Tell us, tell us your fascination in that. Why, what, what, why does that work for you? What's your, what's your curiosity with it? Oh, mate, I think it's, the, the human body is a, is a curious thing. It's, it's complex. You know, there's so many things that are going on in one second that we have no idea that are going on. And, um, there's so many, there's so many involuntary things that are just happening. I just, I marvel at it, but, I mean, it's, it's, there is no denying that obviously the way that we eat, what we eat, how we move, obviously it impacts our health, our longevity and our health span. You know, Max is a great, a great uh, you know, I guess voice because he's able to break down extended research and, and put into ways that we can all understand from a very colloquial nature. Um, for me... You know, like, let's take, let's take fiber, for example. You know, we have prebiotics, 
which is, you know, fibrous foods. We have probiotics, which is the, the microbiome in our gut that, you know, we have millions of, trillions upon these microbiomes in our gut. Like, the microbiome is amazing. And then they produce by consuming the fiber. Now, just to be clear, that our bodies, we only have 17 enzymes that break down um, this fiber, whereas, uh, you know, there's thousands upon thousands in microbiome. So there's a very small amount that our human body digests, but there's a large amount that microbiome sitting in our, in our, uh, you know, in our actual guts digest. And actually, on our thumb alone, there are more microbiomes, little, little numbers, living in our thumb there are on um, living people on in London. Uh, so that's a that, that's pretty. Oh, actually, even the UK actually believe it is. Oh, not UK, England. Apologies. Um, but back to what I was saying. So those the prebiotics, which is the fiber consumed by the, the po- uh, probiotics, then create postbiotics, which is the short chain fatty acids. Now these things are essential to for a number of things. But one of the things they do is actually present uh, fantastic opportunities for the brain. So. You know, these, these things can actually go between uh, the synapses in the brain and help provide messages in these neurotransmitters. Now, why is that important? In food, we need food to excite us, to enlighten these neurotransmitters, uh, so that make like, back to the gut to help us get digesting food people. So essentially, when we look at food, it lights up our brains if we like it. Serotonin, endorphins, you know, all these things get released and we're all really happy which gets our guts primed to digest the food efficiently. So when you look at, say, your favorite food, think about what it is, you know you're excited. And so that part of that is the rush of amazing hormones that are going on inside your, your brain and also the activation of neurotransmitters. And then they prime the digestion what's about to take place. So that's a fascination in one thing that, that I'm fascinated by. Your brain... By looking at some food you're excited by helps support digestion. And that's one thing. Think about the ability to support your immune system, the way that your ability to suppress, uh, you know, stress, the way that we can actually sleep better, like all these different fascinations. Ultimately, food is, is a marvelous thing. I always want to say first, it, it does a number of things uh, nutritionally, but ultimately, it brings so much happiness, and that is well supported by that. You know, as an example I said earlier, by the rush of the serotonin, the happy hormone. But ultimately, it brings us that happiness, and that's something that we all can't deny. And that's why I love even diving into the weeds, if you will, on, on um, the physiology of neurotransmitters. Is that something you're bringing? Is that is that something you're conscious about when you are presenting a menu and or a plate of food? in New York at Charlie Street, are you looking to say, we know this food is going to be good for your microbiome, we know this is actually going to be beneficial for your brain neurotransmitters. However, your brain's going to look at this and go, man, that looks good. Is that um, something you're conscious of when you're building your menu and doing it? No, it's not. Because <laughs> for me, I, I know that it is. Like I naturally, when I'm creating a menu, I know what, I, I like to think I know what an audience wants. I then I then I look at it and go, okay, well that if that's the case, I then can determine. Um, I'll make some flavors that will relate to that. But ultimately, I mean, to make tasty food. The, the payoff for tasty food is colorful and abundant, which 
activates those exciting, uh, excited hormones, neurotransmitters. So it's going to be a win anyway. But like, I don't, I don't look up the make of my bowls and my plates and my dishes and my dinners and say, I'm going to make this based on the nutritional value or the benefits. I never do that. I, I do, I, my sole job is to create flavor first because flavor is what's going to motivate people to eat the right way and enjoy a meal. And if I was nutrition focused, I would, I would probably not be in the right profession. Um, so by making sure flavor is the priority, I make sure that the motivation to eat these foods and have respect for them and understand where these ingredients come from, uh, I'm, you know, I'm more focused on. So I think that's really important. When I create a menu, it's, it's not yeah, it's not at a cellular level that I'm thinking about the dish. I'm, I'm doing it from a flavor respect on your palate. You said as a young guy, you weren't really sure who you were. Are you very clear on that today, Dan? Uh, yeah, I think, I think I'm much more clear as towards what I'm doing now. Um, I still think I still think you get moments where you go, firstly, wow, look what we get to do every day. But also, like, I I still think if someone asks me what the next five years look like, I know what I have wanting to achieve and if I achieve them I still think that there's different ways of doing that if that makes sense so like people ask where you live for example and where, where I live doesn't define who I am but I think it has an impact on like you know my lifestyle so if I'm living in Sydney's northern beaches I'm no doubt someone who's a surfer more than someone who's going to you know a gym in Soho every day um so for me, I know my goal. I know what I'm wanting to achieve and have an impact on people and I'm fortunate to have a community of people that support me every day. Um, and I know that I believe I can have an impact on society in a way that um, through my education and the tools I have through my, my team, um, we can achieve that. That's ultimately what my vision is, is to continue building my voice, continue building a, a, a platform for people to be uh, excited by to learn from and then from that to extend and extend opportunities from that. When you have those moments of self-doubt, Dan, how do you run your internal dialogue? Because we all have them. You do come across as this knockabout Northern Beaches Aussie who's doing very, very well in lots of different different ways in New York. We have these moments we find they most regularly appear for Dan Churchill or what's your internal dialogue what's your default dialogue to deal with that yeah it's interesting I I think people will always have doubt in themselves because that's you're always going to be the harsh critic um you know like I find myself like COVID was a pure example of that right here in New York City and you, you all of a sudden everything shuts down and New York is one of the hardest hit places. And you start to think, well, should I still be here? And then all of a sudden you go, well, yeah, because internally my dialogue is you are, you are doing what only you can do. And, so, you know, the person next to you is doing only what they can do. If you were going to go home to Australia, you would then do whatever you want to do there, but it wouldn't be this. And that's fine, but you've got to be okay with that. So I ultimately have this moment of, of, of visualization and reality where I have to say, if I was to leave everything I'm doing right now and move it to another location, 
I've got to be fine with that's not going to necessarily be the same thing. I'm not going to have the same access to opportunities over here. You know, I'm not going to be six hours from Europe. I'm not going to be, um, you know, being able to go to New York, my, my cafe, like all these kind of things. So ultimately, as much as, you know, that when COVID hit, it took a hit in, in, in uh, like our, our timeline for the Charlie Street, for Charlie Street and, and amongst its um, other avenues, you just ultimately get back up again. You know, I've lived that my whole life. I've been doubted. Um, everyone gets doubted. Everyone, you know, doubted their whole life, and especially in my industry. So I think I've grown that thick skin to an extent that you have to learn. Um, but part of it, Dad, definitely. Part of it's my brother's. Uh, Mum's too loving. She's too nice and cuddly. So I probably get the softer side from her. But yeah, I, I definitely think I you have the positive self-talk comes back from the... the, the Big skin that you grant um, from being in this kind of, you know, society. It is interesting though, Dan, because in, you know, these cooking shows, you've come out of one of the biggest in the world in terms of audience. It's a, it's a pressure cooker. Like MasterChef can make or break chefs. You made it right through until the final five or six. So you, you, you did really well and you hung in there. Yet what's really interesting is quite often, when the camera swings around, whether it be a master chef or a top chef or whatever, whatever competition it may be, when they talk to the chef who's going through the competition, the one commonality I hear the most is them doubting themselves as a chef. I hope it's this. I'm just hoping. I'm not ready to go home yet. It seems intrinsic, and maybe it's because this, it, the exposure through media, but chefs do seem to carry this real internal dialogue of doubt with their ability to put out a great menu. Do you think that's because people are going to judge you on what you put in front of them so easily? It's so easy to, I think it's back to your negative self-talk again, you know what I mean? Like, I think it's so easy for you as a leader to doubt yourself, especially coming out of a high like that. You've, you've, you're at a high, you've, you've, you know, you come out of it and you start doubting yourself. It's so easy for that to happen, especially, honestly, especially in Australia, because Australians told to be humble individuals and I love that. We all love that about ourselves. You know, like I I think one of the biggest pieces of feedback from I still get these days, you know, do not think big of yourself enough. And I, it's not that. I just don't think Australians talk themselves up. But amidst all that, it seems as if we don't uh, value how we truly, what, what, what we bring to this world. And so when we, when we leave these shows or we achieve something, or even if you, like, get a new job. Sometimes people are like, do I deserve this? Now I've got to actually step up. Can I actually do that? Mm. And mm. it's very, very common. It's so common. But ultimately, it, I would say to those people, and anyone who's, you know, a chef in, as well in that same position, it's like, you are the only person who can either get up and do it or let that talk tell you you can't. You can easily just go, yeah, it's too hard. My, my my voice is saying I can't do it and not do it. That's the easy way out. But ultimately, you can't get your partner, your brother, your mother to do what it is you have to do. You have to do it. And so all these people come out of these shows and go, well, now I've got to, um, you know, get onto it. It's like, well, you just got to. You know, you don't have a choice. If you don't, especially with people who have a media personal brand, you're going to get caught out. You really are. Do you consider yourself a generalist? 
or a specialist? Because your branding is around quite a focus. But then when I look at your career, you were a PT, studied at uni, love your food, studying the science of food, chef. You got a lot of exposure in media and experience in there now. A few books, a lot of television. You're big into fitness. You're now working with elite athletes, exercise physiology, wellness. And Pat Flynn talks about skill stacking is that it's the world of the generalist, is having lots of different things to call upon to build your arsenal. And others talk about being a specialist and just digging into one thing. Which camp, which camp do you sit in? I'll say, I'll re, I'll re, um, how I put it, I'm going to redefine a very common saying and say, I'm a jack of, I'm a sub level jack of a, a number, a few little things, master of none. <laughs> so I definitely feel myself as, as definitely probably more of a generalist, um, which is something I've had to challenge myself with and be a bit more specific in some areas. So, you know, for example, with the podcast, we've seen much more, um, many more questions and points of interest on this human performance angle. And I'm like, I'm now leaning more into my master's degree than we initially thought we would. And that's fine because I love it. Um, but that's, that's the thing. A lot of my, like, I've got my degrees and I've got my experience. They kind of blend, they can blend together, which I'm fortunate about, which I've allowed. Like, by being in the health and wellness circuit, I'm a chef in the health and wellness circuit who's also, um, you know, been fortunate to do the studies in relation to strength conditioning. So, like, I kind of, I have, like, a circle, if you will, of uh, roundabout skill sets and experience. Yet, it doesn't give me one key thing, and which can be a negative, too. You know, sometimes it's like, you want to be top of mind. And if you're top of mind for three things, that's awesome. But to get top of mind for three things, you have to be elite in each of them. So, um, yeah, I think, I think what I've commonly understood is that I live a lifestyle that I love and I talk about the lifestyle that I love and I educate people on the lifestyle that I love. And that is recovery, having a great time with friends, obviously working out and eating uh, the way that I believe suits myself and respectfully uh, perform plans for those who also want to do the same. And because of that, I, I'm excited by a number of facets in that wellness space, which makes me go, well, which one is it that I really want to focus on? It's like, well, I think that in itself is a brand. So that's kind of like an SEO general expression. Are you are you doing that now, Dan? Are you because I think the thing that came to mind is what's the next skill in your stack? So I guess is are you looking to create <laughs> another skill in your stack, or are you looking to, as Pat Flynn would say, find something you're already interested in and go deeper in that? Ah, uh, look, I'm definitely definitely diving further into the human performance game and how food particularly plays a role in that. Like, so you'll, you'll note on my podcast of the last, last five months, it's been individuals who are really, really experts in their field. Um, and like, I'm not talking people who launch products or companies. I'm talking, you know, scientists and researchers um, and athletes still as well and relating how human performance relates to those people. So I've said some of the best neuroscientists. I've had David Sinclair on. I've had... Um, you know, the likes of Mike Watts, the athlete director of Under Armour, and all these people who are speaking all that super performance and how we can all 
you know, live a better, healthier, longer life. Uh, and so I'm now taking all the things they talk about and apply them to food each single week, which is how I can kind of make them, make people feel like they're applying the knowledge of these sometimes weedy podcasts into a way that's easy for us to understand. So I'm definitely, definitely going further into that, but I'm also diving further into other areas. Like business obviously does interest me. So as I further grow my, I guess, my the, the epic table, I'm also looking at growing Charlie Street and the business acumen I need to do to do around that. And like learning how to do campaigns and grow a CPG line and grow stores and um, do the right hires. That interests me. And then the other side is like, I guess, in the, in the movie film world, like the idea of producing, um, putting your own shows together, that also interests me. So... I'm a big fan. I'm big, like, obviously, I like a lot of shiny, shiny gold coins. That's where I've got to learn to kind of pack it in a little bit. If we go kind of a full circle back to the head of the show, we talked about you coming out of MasterChef, new book, you became Dan Churchill, the healthy chef. You were very disciplined with how you presented that. You were very consistent with that. And so Under Armour go online and put in healthy chef and they keep seeing Dan Churchill. They meet you. You guys agree, you start working with them, you then start traveling the world with Under Armour's elite athletes. And it's something you have now talked more and more about in the last couple of years, this, this interest in nutrition for peak performance. When, when you're hanging out with truly elite athletes and what have you noticed as a critical part of their success that perhaps you weren't aware of, but by being so close to them as a chef for them, working side by side with them, what have you observed that perhaps not many people know about or perhaps you didn't even know about but is an absolute critical part of their DNA? Uh, I mean, from a, from a human physiology, their ability to be just, men- their mental strength is uncanny. Um, Particularly in individual sports, I find those in individual sports, people defy uh, so many obstacles and hurdles. And media, scrutiny, self-talk, um, poor personal poor performances that relate to a cycle and cascade of things. There's, there's that. I mean, further to that, you, you, you see them also inundated with a tight support network. And I think that's something that we all learn as we get older. We have our true friends, the people who will be with us no matter what, and the ones that will just be around us because of what we do. And I think athletes, particularly individuals, have a really good support network. They usually have their friends, their family, um, and, and their team, and that's generally their support network. And that helps them with their mental strength. They're usually very dialed in. So like they, are, they live their life to a very much a, a, very much a structure. Um, where that structure was you know, implemented by themselves or a coach, it's, it's structured. And to the point that sometimes when it's time off, they really need to, you know, have fun um, because it's so regimented when they're, when they're on. So, you know, I think the commonality is just, uh, it's, it's very hard to put into words, but just how mentally strong these individuals truly are. Have you adopted anything you've picked up, Dan? You've been working with these guys at the highest level. And you carry a lot of responsibility because you're fueling their performance. Have you have you taken something from being in the presence of these people that you think you have absolutely adopted as some, as part of your DNA, 
which has had a profound impact on your performance or productivity or your well-being? Yeah, I uh, I think it goes without saying you learn from the people you're you know around um, all the time, and um, you know the people I've been fortunate to be around and work with is incredible. I'm blessed, but you also like if these are the high performers in their respective field, I want to learn from. Them. I want to learn from the high performers who are CEOs. I want to learn from the high performers who are farmers. So obviously, in the athletic world, I definitely want to learn from them. And, there's definitely a number of things like I've always had because I'm in the recovery game because that's what you know food is um, to athletes. It's, you know, I I admire how much mobility work they do, how much stretching they do. But I think what I admire most is actually not the on, it's the off. I think I admire how much they switch off and how well they switch off, and that's something that. I think going uh, back to the very first question you talked about was actually stepping back and reflecting. I think it's so hard when you're on to do that. When you're off, it's quite easy. So I find myself, I've learned to really just take the time to be really chilled out and have fun, you know, really enjoy yourself. And then from there, like, you'd be amazed what creativity comes your way. One of the guys that you admire the most is... Leonardo da Vinci. And I'm going to paraphrase James Lipton from Inside the Actor's Studio, that if if heaven exists and it's your time and you walk through the pearly gates and you bump into Leonardo, that's da Vinci, not DiCaprio, Leonardo da Vinci. If you could ask Leonardo da Vinci, one of your heroes, a question at the pearly gates, what would you ask him? Oh, which one? Um, I I would honestly. He has the craziest brain. I like. I I would very. Inter- I would love to know how much he slept. I would love to know because like he's. Everyone knows him, you know. I think for like I guess the Mona Lisa and a number of different things, but he is a, you know, I guess a a, uh, a production. He's a producer for like Broadway shows. He's an inventor. Um, you know, he invented some of the, the, the biggest impactful war machines of uh, the time and people still know him for painting, which is awesome. But I think for me, I'd love to know, like, it's so hard to ask where's your creativity come from. I'd, I'd be more interested in about what habits he does and what he routinely does. He, he used to write a lot in the journal. Um and I think that's what's important and critical when you are. You want to learn to ask the right questions with people you are sitting down with and learning from. It's not the obvious questions. It's the one that sometimes obvious but original that are never asked. And ultimately, it's like you're not trying to find out how they got to an answer. You're finding out how they tick, what habits they have, what routines they do, um, maybe certain things, that how, how they came to a a problem, not what the problem was they overcame. And so with Leonardo, he's, you know, a very fascinating individual. And to some degree, some people thought he was quite crazy. So I, I, I don't even know the kind of... The question I would ask would be like, firstly, let's grab an espresso because I want to, I want to have more than just, you know, one question with him. And then uh, from there, I just want to hear him chat, to be honest, because I feel like I would learn, I would have... And the one question I ask him, it'll rattle off into 50 after 
two minutes for him chatting. I also don't think he spoke English, but that's another question I have to kind of come to. Uh, technicality. Technicality. We're we'll just going to Google. We can fix that. Technicality. Uh, you know, it's interesting, Dan. My first question Dan. would be actually, yeah, do you speak English? <laughs> <laughs> when you go through it, and, and not to be flippant, but it's funny the comparisons that one could make through the career you're currently on, the journey you're on, and Leonardo, because he did lots of things and he did an extraordinary amount of things that many of us weren't really familiar with until you start to read or watch biographies about Leonardo. However, it all comes back to one thing. and you, At the start of what you talked about, he said he was a great inventor or a great creator. So he had, he had that identity that goes back to, you, you were with the top of the show, we talked about you were the healthy chef, and you're doing that through the podcast and your TV and the TV studios and Charlie Street, your writing, your books, your podcast interviews. So it's kind of interesting that we could all take away that, you know, who are you and what are you, what are you going to be known for? What is going to be your, your work about? But it can show itself in a variety of different ways. So it kind of is interesting. When I heard you talk about Leonardo, I thought, actually, there's a lot of similarities there with how you are projecting different, same but different, projecting your own career. Mate, you are relating me to a great man. I, if I am a very minor fraction of what that man achieved, I am very happy with that. <laughs> well, see, seeing the photos with your uh, shirt off there, mate, when you're out there running in New York, you know, we, we're trying to get some <laughs> sort of similarity there. What's, what's the picture of that man he has in the, in the wheel? <laughs> oh, geez, what's that one? <laughs> um, to go from one great man to another great man, uh, and this is a very simplistic question. Tetsuya is considered to be one of the greatest chefs in Australia. And I had the privilege one night of sitting in a kitchen with him. And he'd finished service and we were shooting the breeze. And I asked him about his favourite meal or his favourite place to eat outside of his own kitchen. And he talked about another celebrity chef who was a really good friend of his, the iconic Guillaume from Benelong, which is the, used to be the very famous restaurant that he ran at the Sydney Opera House. And Tetsuya said he would go down there and he would make him a very, very simple bowl of spaghetti. Nothing flash, just a beautiful, simple bowl of spaghetti and they would sit and talk. What's that meal for you? Firstly, Guillaume is um, just a, a weapon. Uh Mate, my meal, believe it or not, is a simple bowl of spaghetti. Mate, I, I, I would be lying if it's anything else. I have grown up having my family criticise and critique and help me perfect a particular bowl of spaghetti that we all love. Um, so for me to say anything else, it's serendipitous to me. It's um, nostalgic. It's... I guess to an extent, it's, it's that bowl of spaghetti represents so much more of the amazing flavor. It represents my upbringing and what got me into food. So um, it's, yeah, simply, simply that. When you are a young kid from the northern beaches, you grow up with your brothers, you write a book for your mates essentially, which becomes a great success, you end up in media, and then suddenly you've got a trajectory, you've got to build a team around you. So suddenly you've got great restaurant in New York and you're doing podcasts, you're going off to do television interviews, you've got a lot going on and you've got a team. 
So you've gone from being this kid in the northern beaches into suddenly you've been thrust as part of that trajectory into a leadership role. What's, what's the number one leadership principle that you've learnt in your career that to this day you still call upon on a regular basis to make it work for you? I think you have to... I, I generally, you know, I think if I look at a number of different uh, principles in this, there are a number that come to mind, but one that unifies them all. I, I think when you're a leader, people still have to look up to you in inspirational fashion. And that doesn't mean they have to put you as a figurehead or put you on a pedestal. But what you say, what you're driven towards, uh, what you believe in, it has, it has to inspire your team because outside of the financials, outside of the, the turning up because they're part of that team, they have to want to get up and do something and be a part of a common goal. And a leader is someone who has to stand by that. And, yeah, it goes uh, – I, I know a number of different people who are very good at, op, like, ops in a team. I know a lot of people who are great creativity. Uh, but if you can't inspire a team, they're not going to work and execute the plan that you may be really good at setting out or the, uh, you know, the project that you want to do. Ultimately, I believe as a leader, you have to inspire them to want to be better. Um, and that's something I do try to call upon as much as possible. If I walked into the kitchen, if I walked into the restaurant at Charlie Street, how confident are you that the team individually could recite back to me the mission or the purpose, as Simon Sinek would call it, the just cause of the restaurant and or the whole Dan Churchill vibe? How confident would you be that they share the same vision you have for the impact you want to have? It's a great question. Um, and as of right now, because of... Uh because of Corona, we we are a smaller team than usual, so I'm more confident. <laughs> more confident <laughs> they'll be executing that answer. Um, <laughs> uh, but to be completely honest, no, we we do have regular meetings that you know obviously demonstrate the vision. Um, sometimes it's harder for some areas of the team to understand, and that's something that we try to we try to overcome. Um, you know, because you do have your exec team and then you have your day-to-day operational team. So you want to make sure that everyone still works towards a common goal, but uh, not everyone is privy to the same information, obviously. So I think ultimately we have regular meetings about what our mission is, what we achieve to do. And that, and that's the same with, uh, like, I, I lead by example. So like the way that I talk to someone naturally is how I want someone my team to talk to us or even a fellow team member. If a fellow team member does not feel appreciated, I need to know about that because if I don't, I wasn't feeling appreciated, I'm not going to work efficiently. Um, it's all these commonalities that we have, we have regular meetings about, but yeah, I, I guess uh, much more confident considering the, uh, the numbers uh, are a little bit smaller with uh, respect to the testing. Do you question yourself as a leader, Dan? Because what it's interesting when you look at your profile, you've got a very deep media catalogue. You're hanging out with some pretty, pretty heavy-hitting celebrity chefs in New York and or America. Do you, do you find yourself 
questioning yourself as a leader sometimes? Um, I don't think I ever questioned myself as a leader. I think I was definitely always born to lead in some capacity. In some, and, uh, you know, a leader doesn't have to be the person in front of the pack. There's, there's different forms of leadership. But I, I, never, I think that's one thing. I never question myself as a leader. I'm always someone I want. I feel people can come to me and, you know, kind of divulge in their harder times, but also like work with me and I like, you know, and also like, you know, I get my team to tell me what I don't know. So like, I don't want to have a team where I'm teaching the whole time. I also want to be educated. So, you know, I think I always have that, um, that preconceived notion in me that, you know, you're not, a leader is not someone who's a captain of the football team necessarily. A leader is someone who can be, some don't have to speak, they just do. Um, and that's where your balance of your team has become so important. Before I hand you Robbo to close this little shindig out, uh, Bruce Lee, the famous actor, famous martial artist, had a saying that we, we talk about on the show from time to time. And the saying was, it's not the daily increase, but the daily decrease. Hack away at the unessentials. What's something that you have hacked away and eliminated either from your diet, your world, your habits, your rituals, routines? What's something you've taken out of your world that's had a profound impact in a good way? Oh, geez, this is a great one. I'm taking a number of things. Easily, um, you know, it's funny. Like I, I Entering into corona I, uh, or quarantine, I should say, is... Uh, I've, my, my, my lovely lady, she's been stuck in Australia, so I was home on my own. It's easy for me to just turn the TV on. Um, and so I did that for about a week, and so I was watching Netflix. And my rule became, if it's not educational, I'm not doing it. And I don't mean, like, educational as in, like, uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm watching a, a non-fiction, you know, or, like, if, if it's, even if it's a based on true story, um, you know, that, that, that's lenient. But... I, I have eliminated more of that time and increased my reading time astronomically. My personal development time right now is unbelievable. 2020 became a year of a lot of knots, a lot of people, and I'm like, well, okay, what can I take out of this, this year? And what I'm taking out of it is education for myself. I'm learning so much about everything. Um, so there was that. Um, I, I'm also I'm actually working out a little bit less. And that's not by the fact that I don't have a gym to go to. Uh, I'm actually concentrating more on my mobility right now. I'm working on uh, my recovery as opposed to my activity and seeing if that's, having, if that's going to have a more profound effect on my ability to perform better, So, which is, which is a challenge because I like to work out. Um, obviously, it's a mental thing for me. But yeah, that's um, that's been a huge one. For me. You know, you have to be careful, mate. You've but effectively you've just said that taking your lovely lady out of your life has made your life better. You've just dug yourself a big hole, buddy. <laughs> uh, no, no one, she won't, she won't hear this. No one listens to the show anyway. So you're uh, fine, mate. You're I'm fine. Gonna, no one listens to the show. It. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> not going to. Jeez, yeah, jeez. Big coach is coming home to a really nice cook dinner tomorrow night. <laughs> 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 Do you know what's interesting though? This is just just to, to close this little bit out, but this is just something I've been pondering. Over the last couple of weeks, Dan, we've we've put a bit into the show of stuff we're finding, uh, whether it be a lesson of rock or just an observation. And I've made comment in, in the stuff that I write about or have shared in the show about all, all Netflix, but Michelle Obama says that when she's doing a book signing, 
if she's meeting people, she's completely looking at them, not looking around, not con- not contracting. Then they go, "Said that person." We talked about World War Two. You know, Vera Lynn, Dame Vera Lynn, recently died. World War Two in color is an extraordinary series, as is the Vietnam series on Netflix. The Garth Brooks special we talked about, which is incredible, with with how he put his career together and how he operates as one of the biggest artists in the world. The food shows like Ugly Delicious, I find fascinating for giving you an insight into what's around the world and. I quite often write down places I want to visit based on where he goes to. But what I'm finding is that we criticize watching television or watching Netflix, yet I think that one of the, the, the trend that Netflix is showing is that there are these wonderful documentaries which are so beautifully shot and so well put together and insightful can actually add to your world. So it's not the actual medium itself, it's actually the discipline of what you choose to watch. I reckon that Netflix are seeing exactly what you just said and I reckon they're tipping a lot more resource and focus into documentaries which help people's lives as opposed to just entertainment. Do you, do you, do you think that? Mate, absolutely. That's why I'm working on a show that's more docu-series. <laughs> oh, really? Heard it here first, folks. Um, yeah, yeah. Like I, uh, I, personally, I personally see... People are now more in tune. Well, that's not true. A lot more people are in tune with the Netflixes and the Amazons of the world um, and are looking to them to be educated. And people want to, like, so we said about food, people want to know more about where their food came from. People are wanting to know more about this true story. Look what's happened in, not only now in the US in the last few weeks, but, you know, we put out all these shows, these movies relating to, like, what Black Lives Matter stands for. And it's amazing in that week, what you've learned about our history and how much, you know, like, you know, quite frankly, as an Australian growing up, I, did, I, I was just, I grew up in a loving family that, um, who was so open to equality that I didn't realise, obviously, the history of, say, America like this. Like, I just, and I, not to say that I, I, I never treat anyone different. I always have. I, it's always the same thing I've done. Is everyone's the same to me. But it doesn't matter. Like, I, I still, um, learning from these kind of shows and and movies, you, you truly learn about things. And that's, that's what I'm really enjoying. Here we go. Here we go. Yeah. Robbo's Nifty 90. Lola, start the clock. Uh, the last book you read. Uh, Lifespan by David Sinclair. Finish this sentence. I never get tired of... Eating. Outside of surfing, what's your favourite outdoor activity? Ooh, uh, just generally working out and sweating, I think. Uh, yeah, I just say, yeah, sweat sessions. <laughs> uh, bacon? Or Tim Tams? Uh, oh, Tim Tams. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you might have just answered the next question. What's best done slowly? Ooh. <laughs> I, I, my answer would be eating Tim Tams, but, you know, that's just me. <laughs> yeah. I, I, <laughs> I'd say pouring chocolate over the top of a, uh, like, coconut choc sauce over a Ooh. nice brownie. Like <laughs> now I'm hungry. Hello, Charlie Street. Uh, uh, your house is on fire. Pets and family and loved ones are all safe. What's the three things you save before you exit the house? Uh, just to be clear, the girlfriend has, when you say loved ones, <laughs> I'm, I'm double downing there on you that. Go. Good just thing. to make sure it's also yeah. out. Computer, easily, because it's got everything on it. Um, I don't mind being naked. I think you guys know that on Instagram. I'm totally fine. So I can don't have clothes. Uh, <laughs> Um, I would probably take, um, oh, this is tough. Oh, no, nah, I need, I definitely need my, um, my, my 
my Under Armour running uh, trotted shoes. My my trotted oh, nice. are fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. And I reckon at this point, my Sarah gun, because that is just relieving me of so much mobility. Beautiful. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, what's one thing you need to stop doing? I, I probably need to... Okay, you know what it is? I need to stop filling up my, my uh, sink with dishes and expecting someone else to clean them up. Beautiful. Because <laughs> no one is right now. <laughs> not, that, not that I would leave the friend of mine, let me be clear. But I'm like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, hello hello yeah. to Dan's lovely lady if she's listening. And finally, the, this is the big question, mate. Uh, Gary's been warming you up for the last hour. Um, you wake up in the morning, drag your ass out of bed, but your mojo is just not firing. We're not feeling it today. Into the kitchen, grab an espresso, even that doesn't do it. What's the song that goes on your iPod, radio, headphones, whatever you may be listening to? What's the song that goes on to get your mojo kicking for the day? Oh, Pajano by Prince, absolutely. I've been playing that at the cafe at about two o'clock every day, and we're ready to get like we're in, we're ready to go to Europe. It's fantastic. <laughs> Beautiful. Now, I'm going to ask you one more foodie question before we let you go. Uh, I have a, a bolognese recipe that my kids love. Uh, and my best mate's wife is also a chef. In fact, she teaches uh, chefery in Perth, in Western Australia. And she tells me that every chef has their own special bolognese recipe. A, do you have one? And B, if you do, what's your secret sauce for your bolognese? Like in terms of not sauce, but what's your secret ingredient? Absolutely do I have that. This is what I made my family life on. This is, uh, I come home and everyone's like, we don't care you're home, we just want your bolognese. That's, uh, you know, that's how it works. So firstly, the pasta needs to be homemade. Secondly, fresh herbs and dry herbs. Uh, and then... With the tomatoes, they've got to be whole peeled and you've got to make sure you squeeze them with your hand. They're like, they're, oh, they're the tips nice. I'll give away. Yeah, nice. Yeah, I'm into that. Very, Very nice. Dan, this has been fantastic. Uh, I'm, I'm a fan of your work. Ever since we got connected, I followed your stuff. It's great. People will want to know more about you, the work you're doing. We've talked about the restaurant, the TVs, the podcasts. Where do you send people, mate? Where's the hub for everything that's Dan Churchill? Mate, you can uh, you go to Instagram, Dan underscore Churchill. If you want recipes, you can go to danchurchill.com. And just like if you listen to this podcast, you can uh, go over to the Epic Table or Dan Churchill's at the Epic Table wherever you listen to podcasts and, and subscribe. And then you can hear my voice every single week, which would be awesome. <laughs> people love your podcast It's so because it's so unique in that for the folks who haven't heard it yet, but they will, is that you have some amazing guests uh, on the show, but you cook with them. So whilst the interview is happening, you're actually cooking a meal. It's such a unique concept. It's great. Yeah, yeah. It's the best way I can get some of the best people in. I was like, I'll cook you a meal if you come and do a podcast with me. Beautiful. And that's uh, how it works. Unfortunately, right? that doesn't work for us. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, mate, it's been excellent talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. It's great to see another Aussie doing so well overseas. Whatever you do, though, don't go changing your passport home country. Thanks, mate. Much appreciated. And, uh, mate, once you're an Aussie, you're always an Aussie. Can't remove that. It'd be like ripping your own heart out, wouldn't it? Surely. Oh, mate. Terrible. Can you imagine? Jeez. <laughs> 
no way. This is a test of the Mojo Broadcast System. The Mojo Radio Show. Nice to see an Aussie doing great things overseas, AP. It sounds, sounds like uh, he's doing a bit of a Curtis Stone, really, doesn't it? Yeah, well, it's interesting because uh, Curtis obviously got his break on surfing the menu with Ben, and this guy's done the same. But what, what I th- yeah. thought was really interesting, I was in New York about, se- I remember, seven years ago, and I was in a, in a cab... Uh, from JFK heading in on uh, into Manhattan, and I saw a cab, and on the top of the cab was an ad, and it was um, Curtis Stone. And then I looked, it was like he was everywhere, billboards everywhere, Curtis Stone, Around the World in 80 Dishes, I think the TV show was called. And it was massive in the States, and I'm like, holy crap, Curtis Stone. I, I didn't realise how big he was. He was huge, yeah. and still is, of course. Yeah, he's doing huge things over there, absolutely. Here's a bit of trivia for you. Mm. Um, when Curtis Stone, before he really became huge, my wife um, was doing PR for a thing called the Five Chefs or some Five Something Chefs, I think it was. I can't remember anyway. It was some th- yeah. something that was done in the Yarra Valley, and Curtis was one. And she had to go and pick up Curtis and look after him while um, they were doing the PR run for this uh, event. And uh, Meg was heavily pregnant with my daughter, Somerset. And the twist in all this story is, uh, last Christmas, Coles did a TV ad, Thank You for Being a Friend, uh, as their Christmas huh. ad, with Curtis Stone. And who did yeah. the singing? Who was the main singer? My daughter. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Somerset's making a name for herself. Indeed. Yeah, it was kind of weird, like she's doing an ad with, with uh, Curtis Stone. There you go. What goes around comes around. Isn't that the old saying in this industry? Absolutely, and uh, Meg's tummy was yeah. certainly round when she first met Curtis. <laughs> the Mojo Radio Show. Well, listen, just before we go, mate, I found a really interesting bit on the web the other day about the difference between taking notes by hand as opposed to typing them on a laptop or iPad or on your phone or whatever. There's been a study published recently in Psychological Science, a magazine, Uh, where they showed a bunch of people TED Talks about various topics and got them to take their own notes. Now, some had to write them by hand and some could take them electronically. Afterwards, they found that the people who used laptops had typed lots more words than those who had written them by hand for obvious reasons because it's easier to type than it is to write by hand. But when they tested how well they remembered the information they'd been shown... They found that people remembered general information at about the same level, things like dates and names and stuff like that. But for what they call conceptual application questions, like one of the questions was how do Japan and Sweden differ in their approaches to equality within their societies? The people who used the electronic devices did, quote, significantly worse. So the research concluded that when we write notes electronically we have a tendency to try to write everything down and we just blurt it onto the page. But those who write longhand are forced to be a bit more selective because you can't write as fast as you can type. And that extra processing of the material is beneficial in the long run because it makes it more cognitive and us and puts it, obviously stores it away in areas of our brain that make it easier for us to use. So, I don't know, mate, I reckon there may be a lesson here and that's to get out the old pen and paper and start taking a few notes. There's one flaw in that idea Mm. and the flaw is if I was to take notes by hand as opposed to type them, I wouldn't have any idea what the hell I'd written because my writing is so appalling. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, true. It, it's funny, you know, because my old man had his own business for years and he always had a notepad and pencil in his top pocket. He's 74 now and well and truly retired, but he still has a notebook and pencil in his top pocket. And I reckon he refers to it daily. He just writes down things he's got to remember, things he sees, just general sort of, I guess, almost like a journal. Um, And he's kept them over the years, a lot of them. Um, And he's got this massive box full of them. And you could almost go back through I guess, through his business and, and things that he's done or things that he's had to remember, you could almost track his life, I reckon, through these notepads. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I think there's something nice about writing something down. Well, I tell you, there's some, it's one of those things that you never see anymore. It's like, you know, they're saying, give it some choke. No one says that anymore. Yes. And the other thing you don't see anymore is people with ink stains on their pocket of their shirt. <laughs> no, that's true. Dexter. Yeah. Ne- never, <laughs> never, never, never. Getting your mojo working. This is the Mojo Radio Show. Well, listen, uh, thanks very much for hopping in the big chair this week. That's all right. I'll take off the big shoe shortly and jump into the small car. That's right. And take off the round nose. Um, <laughs> what do you reckon? We've got to come up with a playout song. What do you What do you reckon? Well, it's a food theme, isn't it? So you could do like uh, Beck Peaches, mm. uh, Food for Thought, UB40. Yeah. You know what comes, song comes to mind for me, uh, not so much because of the lyrics of the song, but because of the video. Remember the video for In Excess's song, The One Thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. With the, They're all sitting around the table at the feast. Eating, and the, the fig piece was a bit uh, risque. Yes. It was a bit back in those days, wasn't yeah, it? Absolutely. But then none of those are quite right. No. I reckon there's something. Maybe, uh, I don't know, is this too obvious? Oh. So obvious. I think we're out. It doesn't matter. 
Joe Radio Show is produced and recorded in the basement of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. To help us get better and give more people the opportunity to touch up their mojo, you can now find us on Patreon. Follow the links on the front page of our website and for a coffee or two a month, you'll get regular bonus material and a copy of Explosive Hits 19, the best of the Mojo Radio Show. In the meantime, to polish your next audio production, check out voodoosound.com.au. For more about Gary, see garybirtwhistle.com and to book me, go to andrewpeters.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.